Uh, let's just take a second and pray before we, uh, we do the message. I felt like the little piece at the end from Amber about, uh, about the gospel and about if, any, you know, if anybody sort of is not connected with Jesus at this point, it might be a good opportunity. And I just think it really fits in well with the message this morning. So I just want to pray uh, for one, for anybody who is here that is sort of wrestling with, like, could I follow Jesus? And for uh, anybody who, you know, if you know people that are, you know, sort of wrestling with that question, which we all do, uh, I'd really like uh, for us to be listening to this message with a sense of, how do I become a person that can tell the Jesus story in a good and, and healthy way? So let's just, uh, let's just pray. You know, Lord, uh, with, with church, we have so many different things that are our focus, you know, growing spiritually and caring for kids and having a life of worship. And all of these things are, are an amazing part of what we're, we're doing. But uh, I ask that you would help us come back to the center of the why we're doing it, Lord. Would you implant in us in a fresh way an understanding that the telling and demonstrating of your story is the thing that changes the world. This is what it's about. This message. This encounter with you is the one thing that can solve every problem on the planet. As people come to know you and to follow you. Wherever you lead, it gets better. So would you teach us to be people uh, who can in every aspect of our lives exist to help people come uh, and, and receive your invitation to receive your leadership, to receive the gift of the cross. Come, Lord Jesus. Implant the gospel uh, more deeply in us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen, amen. Cool. So we're in uh, the book of Acts, and we've been looking at this, uh, at this book over the last several weeks. Uh, we sort of went right up to Easter. We took us to the story of the resurrection of Jesus, and then we just camped out in Acts, and we've just been slowly working our way through, and we're really now just getting into uh, Acts chapter 2, uh, really this, the second part of Acts chapter 2, which is this uh, incredible story of the sermon of Peter. Uh, you know, the, the sort of famous disciple of Jesus, the kind of leader of those guys, uh, the person who ultimately uh, became the core leader of the church in Jerusalem. And uh, we had this amazing encounter in it around the time of Pentecost, which we celebrated as a church a couple of weeks ago, where people from all over Jesus' world, from all over this planet, uh, the, in terms of the Roman world and what was understood as the central sort of part of the world at that time, from all over the Roman world, people came back to Jerusalem to celebrate a feast. And it was at that strategic moment uh, that the Holy Spirit was poured out on the disciples, that they had this incredible experience in the upper room with tongues of fire and speaking in other tongues and uh, the, the room being filled with the Spirit like a mighty rushing wind, that whole incredible radical experience uh, that we see in Pentecost uh, that we have so much beautiful art about. If you, if you just, again, I've said this every week because you should just do it. Just Google uh, Pentecost and look at image search. And it's just one of the most colorful, beautiful uh, sort of 
areas of Christian art that you can see because it's just, it was such an exciting time. So after that, after the Holy Spirit was poured out and the disciples went out into the street and began telling the Jesus story and people were hearing it in their own language, uh, people began to wonder, began to ask questions, began to sort of say, what is, what is going on with these freaks is basically what they were saying. Like there's something wrong with you people. Like you're so excited. You're speaking in language and I can understand the story like like what's going on um, and then there was just this moment in the story where Peter just stands up and begins to speak and I can't imagine like what that was maybe like for Peter I know when I uh, prepare a sermon I can spend somewhere between 10 and 15 hours to prepare a 40-minute talk for you but I'm pretty sure Peter didn't go online and look at his Bible software and try to figure that all out and exegete the text and uh, prepare some illustrations and I'm almost certain he didn't have a PowerPoint or any of that sort of stuff but somehow Peter came to this place came out of the upper room somehow in the power of the Spirit delivered this message which by the way led 3,000 people into faith with Jesus and really though what he delivered for us at that time was um, a message that was going to be really a model for evangelism that we could follow for years to come so I don't know exactly how that writing works as Luke uh, recounts the story in the book of Acts and what Peter actually said and how it worked but Peter's first evangelistic message there contains wisdom for us that makes sense whether it's a crusade or it's over a cup of coffee that there are key elements to that story uh, that are going to uh, help us be successful as we live to help those around us encounter the presence and power of Jesus. And so what we're going to do over the next few weeks, I, I mean, I've got most of that whole passage uh, from Acts chapter 2, verse 14 to 40 kind of mapped out for us, and we're just not going to get through it all, but we're just going to get as far as we can this week and, and then keep going as we, as we do. I, I mean, unless, is anybody up for a couple hours? Oh, there's a few of you. That's good. But I, I'm pretty sure other people want lunch. And I hear there's a shower of some kind for some person who's about to get married, Michaela and Lauren. And, and I better not be trumping that event. Like, Jesus is important, but that one is just, like, right up there. And that starts at 2, so we can go up to about, a, what, 145? Max, somewhere in there? Okay. No, so anyway, we'll just go usual sermon time, and we'll just stop where we stop. So that's how it's going to go. So expect an abrupt end. But here we go. So let's just read the text, Acts chapter 2, uh, verses 14 to 40, and we're just going to take it in little chunks. We'll start right here. Then Peter stood up. All this craziness going around, all this stuff happening. Uh, the people from all over the world are there to hear it. The disciples are going out speaking in tongues. Peter stood up with the eleven. He raised his voice. Imagine what that was like uh, with thousands of people. No microphone, no you know, earpiece, no nothing. He just raised his voice um, and said, Fellow Jews, all of you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I say. These people are not drunk as you suppose. It's only nine in the morning. And that's just where it starts. And I, and I think as we unpack the sort of elements of the story, we're just going to see some real wisdom in the way Peter approached the story. 
first thing that we get from this phrase, let me explain this to you, listen carefully to what I say, is this idea that Peter actually asked permission. Which is really, I mean, I don't know how long he paused, or he didn't take a Facebook poll, or any, anything like that, but he, there was something in him that was saying, would you, would you let me explain this to you? Would you let me engage with you? And I just think for us as Christians, as we uh, work to share the gospel and tell Jesus' story, very often we do so without a heart that asks for permission. And very, very quickly we lose our hearing just in that act, in just like bombing people with the gospel and and beating them with Bibles and all those sorts of things that we, we do. I told you the story a couple of weeks ago of me and my youthful zeal. Like, I have to preach the gospel on Parliament Hill. So we took some friends and we went down downtown and I stood up on the eternal flame on that thing. And there were all kinds of tourists there. And I was like, you need to get saved! You know, like I'm, you know, maybe I should have said, can I have your attention please first? Or something, anything. Uh, to just have a spirit that is inviting into conversation. And I just think that the way the church is positioned in our time, in, an, in our space, that where we once were the do dominant sort of voice in our culture, we're no longer that dominant voice. And so we, we have to, as those who are preaching the gospel, uh, begin to uh, see ourselves where we are as, a, as a, a new minority in our culture and earn the right to speak and earn the right to tell the story. And, and when we've done that respectfully and carefully, I think we have so much more authority then to share the gospel. And, and this means like big picture, but it also means in the lives of our friends, doesn't it? Like, hey, do you want to go out for lunch? Like, I'm a Christian, and I know you look at me kind of weird sometimes, like, like, what is that guy all about? And, and I'm like, would you mind me just un unpacking some of that for you so that you can, like, Imagine that I'm not a freak. Like, I would love for you not to think I'm a freak. So if we could just have a little conversation about it, it would be a real blessing to me. And I think if we do that sort of thing with our friends, that, that uh, they who know us and love us and, and trust us will, will give us an opportunity to hear them. And so he, he, does, he says, listen carefully to what I say. He's on the very front end. He's asking them to uh, have a significant level of engagement with them. Saying this is, dude, dude, this is going to take a while for me to explain, <laughs> right? Like, dude, this is a big part of my life, and, and would you mind me taking some time and engaging with me as I unpack this? Uh, very often, the telling of the gospel, I mean, from in the crusade perspective, all of those elements are there, but in a relational evangelism perspective, uh, sometimes that relationship building just takes that time. Listen carefully to what I say. It goes on, and, and he says, these people are not drunk as you suppose. It's only nine in the morning. And what he shows there is that he has uh, a willingness to explain the behaviors of Jesus' followers even before he has a voice to actually tell the gospel. And that's something that we have to do too, right? We have to uh, be willing to uh, explain even just the big picture sometimes of what uh, Christianity and evangelicalism or whatever it is, is to people. Because if you talk to most people on the streets and you say, I am a Christian, 
translated in their minds, it is, you hate gay people. Right? Or it is, you uh, are part of something that hurt me or judged me as part of the church. Or there's all kinds of different things that they hear when you say, uh, I'm a Christian. And so they have looked not just at your behaviors, but now because of social media and the news and the way things are, they're not just judging you as a person. They're judging the behavior of Christians really broadly. Uh, if you say I'm a Christian to some people, uh, say people uh, who are Muslims, they will say you are a crusader who came and killed a bunch of people on, in my part of the world. Right? There's a whole host of things that it might be necessary for us to uh, help people understand in order to gain um, a, a sense of perspective and to gain a voice with them. Um, and so there has to be a willingness to explain the behaviors of Jesus' followers and really just ask people to look deeper. You know, one of the things that, that, uh, that I'll often say when I'm having this sort of conversation with a hitchhiker I pick up or, or something like that um, is, is I'll say right off the bat, like, when, when I say I'm a Christian, what, what does that mean to you? So that I can just know right off the bat you know, what their big reservations are and what their, what their problems are, what their, what their struggles with Christianity are. And I might be able to address those uh, piece by piece, one by one. And again, that's just part of gaining trust with people who, who have, have actually judged us in some ways. What we're really saying to them is, you know, maybe you've been judged by the church, but I'm asking you not to judge me. Can we just go a little bit deeper and maybe you can figure out a bit about who I am and trust me enough for us to have a conversation. So uh, Peter does that in this text. He's like, this is the behavior that you see. They're stumbling around. They're looking drunk. Let me explain to you, that's actually the Holy Spirit that's on them in this moment. And we don't understand the whole deal that's going on, except that we know that this was spoken about in the text. And the way he takes that to the next stage, the next level, explaining the behavior of those people in that space and time, in verse 16, is he says, no, this was what was spoken by the prophet Joel. And what he does for all of those people, again, the people he was speaking to in that space and time were Jewish people who had come from all over the world. All of those people were people who had been involved in Jewish synagogues and had traveled a great distance to be in Jerusalem. So he knew he was talking to an educated Jewish audience. And what he did for them uh, in reading the passage uh, from Joel 2, in the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. And that whole incredible, beautiful text, right? Incredible, beautiful text. What he was doing for them is he was like saying, remember that piece in the scriptures that you all know and understand so well? That piece is what's happening now. That part of your worldview is, is what this moment, these behaviors are relevant to. And so he's taking the time to provide a biblical context. But even thinking more broadly than that for us, we're not speaking to an audience of uh, educated Jewish people. We're speaking to a group of secular humanists 
who have been educated to believe that uh, Christianity, uh, that, that God is, is basically not something to even think about, worry about, engage with. They're, they're for the most part people who simply don't know the story. So the question for us is, how do we uh, understand their context, understand their language, understand uh, where they're coming from, what their worldview is, what their values are, and and show them that faith is relevant to that? And Paul uh, provided a brilliant, brilliant example of that uh, in Acts chapter 17. If you'll remember when he was in Athens, there's this experience where he's speaking now to just secular people. He's speaking now to just people uh, in, in Greece who are worshiping, who are pagans, like just full-on pagans. And he walks around the Parthenon and he looks at the different uh, idols that are there and he says to them this, he says, For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship. And the story goes on, he says, I found a God that you call the unknown God. Like, this, like backup God. Like in case we missed any gods, we have a thousand idols here, we got a backup idol in case we happen to miss any. And he just takes that little piece, that little sense of doubt, that little sense of, okay, we might have missed something. And he says, this, uh, that unknown God that you worship, I know that guy. <laughs> I know that guy. <laughs> Let me tell you about that guy. And he takes something from their worldview and, and gives himself sort of permission to say how what Jesus has to say is relevant to that. I can tell lots and lots of stories about this in my own experience, but one of the most fun ones was uh, a story of uh, you know, a beautiful girl who's sort of a part of our extended community, doesn't really come to church now, but is in his kind of distance from the Lord. But her sort of first encounter uh, with faith was early days coming into Ottawa Valley Vineyard, coming to our church, and she was somebody who was essentially uh, a pagan, essentially, uh, you know, w without a full commitment to it, her basic worldview was Wiccan. She was somebody who, who sort of believed in the white magic, worship of Mother Earth kind of deal. That was a big part of her worldview, but she began coming to church and, and wrestling with, with the God thing, and we had all kinds of different opportunities to preach the gospel and tell the Jesus story. Um, but one of the things that was really, really important to her as, as a Wiccan was the idea of caring for creation, caring for, uh, for the earth. That was a piece, a, a piece for her. And so what I realized was that w with that being relevant to her, in order for her to accept the gospel, she would have to understand uh, something about creation and something about how God fit in that picture. And so we would have lots of talks about creation and, and about uh, how God was the creator and begin building a case for the idea that over top of this planet and over top of creation, that there is somebody who made it all. Somebody who holds it all in the palm of his hands. And we've had lots of sort of conversations like that and, and, and we're sort of engaged at that, that kind of intellectual level and wrestling with other different things. And then just quietly, one Sunday after church, uh, this, uh, this lady just came up to me and said, I get it, I get it. I've been worshiping the creation. I've been worshiping Mother Earth, but I haven't worshiped the one who made it. And in that moment, she gave her life to Jesus. Because all of a sudden, the penny dropped for her. 
this thing that she loved was made by someone who loves that thing too in a real authentic way and loves her too. And all of a sudden the penny dropped. And she's in a place now where she might not be uh, walking with the Lord fully, but when I have that conversation with her now or, or run into her, I can look into her eyes and I can see that she knows Jesus and that she's got more to figure out with him. So there's uh, that idea that is so important for us to uh, just uh, help a person contextualize faith in a way that makes sense for them. Uh, the next thing that Peter does in his sermon is he, uh, after he's gained that hearing, after he's gained that ability to, uh, to have people speak to him, after they come to the place of feeling like, man, this maybe is relevant to my life, then he tells the very basics of the gospel story. He gets the information out there. Let's just read this next little uh, collection of verses. Fellow Israelites, listen to this. Right? He has their permission now. He has the floor. This Jesus of Nazareth, Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs which God did among you through him. As you yourselves know. This man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. He didn't pull any punches there. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death, because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. That is the gospel story told beautifully and succinctly. And so let's just unpack those three verses, those three key elements of it. Um, it, it is, you know, uh, you've often heard, and, and Jack actually quoted this to me the other day. Um, you've heard St. Francis, Francis of Assisi's quote, uh, preach the gospel at all times and if necessary, use words. Right? And that is so true. Like, we have to love people uh, practically and all of that. But I've often heard that verse misused to say that our words are not important at all but it is absolutely important to tell the story, to tell the words of Jesus' story, because people just need to know, uh, know it. And, and we have a tendency to think about that as people, like we've got to tell the gospel story as though somehow uh, once they gain that bit of knowledge, it checks a box off. It's kind of like for us almost a religious thing to make sure that they have it. But there's real importance to each of those elements of the story that need to be unpacked for people. Uh, this first verse, fellow Israelites, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man. I keep saying Nazareth. Nazareth. Um, Nazareth uh, was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs which God did among you through him as you yourselves know. What he's doing there is he's pointing uh, to uh, the experience of people, which was very fresh for them, which is very stale for us 2,000 years later, but he's actually pointing to the way that the person of Jesus walked on the earth as, as fact, as 
history as actual tangible reality that Jesus the person walked on the earth and did certain things. And for us, there's very, very few people in scholarship who would now say that Jesus is a mythical figure. Uh, it's very, very clear, even in secular scholarship, that he was a historical person. Um, but for us, what we need to make a case for is, is, and it's worth making a case for, is it's what his behaviors were actually like. It's worth us helping people understand um, the character of this person that we're asking them to follow. Um, he was incredibly compassionate. We see that in the way that he uh, healed the sick and, and cared for people. He had an authority. We see that also in the miracles. You notice in the text that he's pointing uh, to the miracles. Miracles, wonders, and signs which God did among you. Because the miracles and wonders and signs aren't just pointing to the power of God. He ultimately cites that when he talks about the resurrection. But the miracles, wonders, and signs are pointing to the compassion and care of God. And that he has power to live out his love for you in tangible ways. That's an important part of our gospel. That's why we pray for the sick. That's why we do um, compassionate ministry. So that we're, it's not just as a, a trick to somehow get people to, uh, to hear us. It's actually an expression of the character and the person of Jesus. It's actually us showing people who he was. And the reason we do that with Jesus is to distinguish him from other characters in history. Because if you're trying to distinguish Jesus from the massive collection of people and ideas and thoughts that are followed around the world, um, he absolutely stands out when you tell his story as somebody you might want to follow. We look at, uh, I mean, I, I think there's always a risk in, in sort of challenging other major world religions. But if you look at, say, for example, the behaviors of Muhammad, Right? The, the thousands and thousands of people executed and killed and the piles of wives and, you know, the whole deal associated with the behavior of that person. Which one do you want to follow? Somebody who absolutely lived out a life of compassion, absolutely lived out a life of peace, somebody who absolutely lived out an incredible life of generosity in, in his deeds and we point to the historicity of that. Uh, the second element of the story that Peter just wants us to know the facts about is the death. Uh, Jesus is giving and forgiving a deliberate and costly sacrifice. Reading verse 23, this man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge. And you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him on a cross. That other piece that we need to be telling, that other piece of the story that we need to share is that uh, he gave to us, but he gave to us in the most costly way imaginable. Like he literally uh, was given to us as a sacrifice by the Father. Now, the way that the Hebrew people who were hearing that story at that time would have understood it is they would have immediately gone back to the life of Abraham. Right, and the story of the ram in the thicket. How many of you are familiar with, with some of those old stories? Right, there's, uh, there's that story of Abraham um, 
you know, needing to, to offer a sacrifice. And God literally gave him, like out of nowhere, a sacrifice to be offered for his sin. And that's what Jesus is. Jesus is our ram in the thicket. But, but the ultimate ram in the thicket, the final, complete, the big enough sacrifice that was able to take the sins of all mankind forever and ever and ever and ever. And, we, and, when he, and, he, and when he says this, he says, with the help of wicked men, you put him to death by nailing him on the cross. He's, he's not allowing us to put this as an event that we are distant from. This is something that was for us. Something that we absolutely have to own. And for me, as a young kid, you know, 12 years old at Christopher Lake Baptist Camp, uh, that's actually what happened to me when I first gave my life to Jesus, my heart to Jesus. I don't really remember much of what that encounter was like, but I remember uh, singing some songs around the campfire, and I remember that somebody kind of gave a gospel message and sort of part of a symbolic thing that they were doing as, as part of that service, and there's different ways that churches do that. I remember they had this cross that was all sort of floating out on the water and all lit candles, and they pushed that cross out into the lake. And I don't even know what the candles were for. I don't even know why they did that or how that fit into the service or anything. But I remember that night laying in my bunk, having that image of the cross as a, as a shining light floating off into the lake. I could not escape that image. That image connected me with the story of Jesus uh, 2,000 years ago in a way that I remember looking at it in my mind's eye in my bunk and being absolutely overwhelmed with the idea that God loves me, that Jesus loves me. This cross is an ultimate symbol of God's love who, who gave himself to you, gave everything to you by what he did there. God withheld nothing from you. There's absolutely nothing he held back. He gave himself to you completely. And we have to take him and receive him in that same way. He was, this happened by us. Our sin is why this happened but it happened for us. He forgave our sins and set us free. And ultimately, that is the deepest expression of love that humans can imagine. We have to tell that part of the story. And Peter goes on, the next important fact to share the resurrection. But God raised him up from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death, because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. He won. Right? He won! He won! Nothing trumps Jesus! Death cannot hold him! He is risen! He is alive! He beat it. 
the force that affects every human being on the planet was defeated. He rose from the grave and he is alive. He's alive. That's a story we have to tell. That's what it's all about. He is an incredible, loving, compassionate God. To the point where he gave his whole life for you. Everything. And then he made it possible for you to live forever and ever and ever and ever with him. And that is the story that we must tell. We can't skip over it. We can't not say these words. We have to tell the events that actually happened. Because those events and people knowing about those events absolutely forces a reaction from us. If that really happened, if he really is that loving, if he really absolutely dealt with our sin and everything that could separate us from God, and if he absolutely conquered death, then we are compelled by our integrity to follow him, to give him our lives. That's the story we have to tell. Let's stand up. Father, pray for uh, any of us in this room who, who've just felt maybe even in this in this moment that that they've pushed your story, your gospel back into a corner of their lives and minds and said, oh man, that's just a funny little historical thing that happened. It doesn't really affect my, my life right now. If there's anyone in this room who through this message, this has been brought front and center by the work of your Holy Spirit, would you invite people to respond, oh God? Would you knock on the doors of our hearts? For anyone here who needs to just give in and say, yes, Jesus, I'll follow you. Would you let them say that in their hearts just like I did at Christopher Lake Baptist Camp when I was 12 years old? I surrender. We surrender. Let that transaction happen in some hearts this morning. Just hear Jesus saying, just come back to me. Come back to me. And for any of us for whom the gospel um, who, who have followed you, who, who believe you. But for any of us who have shoved this story into a tiny corner of our hearts, who have been embarrassed to tell it, who have been embarrassed to do the work of relationship building, to earn the right to tell the story.
would you call us to the mission in a new way? Call us to the mission of being your ambassadors. I, I pray that, that some of us uh, this morning would feel commissioned and uniquely sent to declare the gospel of Jesus. I pray that everyone would feel that. Send us out in the same way you sent out Peter. That we would be just like him, not knowing necessarily everything that we're to say, but we would just stand up and begin to speak. Set your church free to speak. In the name of Jesus we pray. Thank you, Holy Spirit. Fill us like you did the, the apostles. Give us boldness and courage. Empower us, oh God. Send us out in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.